verses 13 through 23. Hear now the word of our Lord. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I, until I tell you. For Herod is, ab- is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw all that he when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But then, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take this child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he he rose, he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of our Lord. If you missed last week's sermon, I highly encourage you guys to go online to our Facebook page and check it out as we've been recording them live, and we welcome those of you who are joining us now. Uh, As I'm going to be drawing a lot from that sermon this morning, because I really built on that foundation last week. Uh, But in short, to summarize an entire message into a pithy statement or two, the wise men weren't necessarily who we thought they were. You know, rather than these three insignificant people who just showed up at, a man- at the manger, who were also happy that Jesus was there, these were kingmakers. They were the king-making astrologers from the, uh, from the Parthian Empire, who likely knew about the Messiah's coming from the writings of Daniel the prophet, who also resided in Babylon at the time of their founding. I went to a lot further into the details last week, but there is so much more depth to the significance of these men coming than what initially meets the eye. So keep that in the back of your mind. I'm actually going to go back to verse 1 just for a moment of chapter 2, just to set the stage of where we're going this morning. Because Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who had been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. When the king Herod heard about this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. King Herod, at this point in his life, had become a paranoid, power-hungry madman. There's no other way to describe him. He he had fought for years with the Roman government by his side to ascertain his own title, which 
is he was known by the Romans at that time as king of the Jews. Moreover, towards the end of his life, he became suspicious of anyone who challenged his power and and feared anyone who might collude to overthrow him or take what he had fought for. So consequently, he had put to death his wife, he put to death his mother, he put to death three of his sons, he, anyone he thought could be a challenge to his throne, he, he eliminated. So, and consequently, Emperor Augustus once said, it is safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. That is how power-hungry this man had become, how paranoid he was. So now imagine being King Herod, suspicious and murderous, desperately trying to hold on to your title as king of the Jews, when suddenly these kingmakers from the Parthian Empire come, that rival empire to the east, coming saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Your title. Knowing this, we can, begin, we can begin to wrap our minds around why the travesty at the end of chapter 2 took place. This murderous tyrant had his power challenged. By the way, based on the criteria outlined in this chapter, and what we know about the population of this town, this little town of Bethlehem, this slaughter was not in the thousands, but probably between 20 and 30 children. That's still 20 to 30 too many. That's still a travesty. I mean, Peck, as, a, as a father, I'm putting myself in that picture, and my heart just breaks as I'm pouring over and studying this text. But we, be, we can begin to understand why there wasn't a more public outcry over this travesty. And why Herod reacted the way that he did, as wrong as it was. You know, so many people today hate biblical Christianity for the same reason that Herod did. Same reason Herod hated Jesus. It was a challenge to his personal authority. It was a challenge to his own personal autonomy. To, be, to hear that there was another king. It's been said that uh, Jesus loves you just the way that you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. You know, Jesus calls us to repentance and humility, not to the self-exaltation and the unconditional acceptance our hearts naturally long for in our pride, our sheep-like pride. And the world accordingly rejects Jesus and rejects his rule over them. You know, there's a reason why Jesus said in Matthew 10 that I have not come to bring a peace, bring peace but a sword the reason they he said that is not because jesus isn't peaceful but because the world will not have peace with him or his people they violently react to this affront to their personal and cultural autonomy which is interesting because new age religions that say we should coexist are no threat to their personal autonomy which is why they are accepted worldwide and why biblical preaching like what we are doing right here is illegal in 52 countries worldwide. And if you include nations where you can get arrested for proclaiming certain biblical truths, 
the number is even higher, way higher. In fact, even in Canada, one pastor was arrested for simply reading and teaching from Romans chapter 1. New Testament concepts. And in fact, just recently, they sent another pastor to jail for doing the same thing that we're doing right now. Worshiping. Instead of quarantining and staying at home. They put this pastor in jail. So this... This isn't happening just in North Korea, in Iran, and in China, those countries where we naturally think of persecution. It's happening a lot closer to home. And you know, anything's possible as the world continues to remain openly hostile to the call to surrender to Jesus, to follow him. As he called the rich young ruler, come, follow me, and you will have treasures in heaven. Choosing rather to remain autonomous than to submit to his sovereignty. I know we're not going to be like that here. And if things change here in America, then I guess I'm doing prison ministry. (laughs) But regretfully, we do the same thing, don't we? Jesus calls us to serve him. And we say, no, Jesus. No, I'm comfortable with my lifestyle. There's no room in my schedule for you at this time. He calls us to to share the gospel, to tell other people of the hope that we have, to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And we say, no, Lord, that makes me uncomfortable. What will other people think if they find out that I'm one of those Christians that actually tell people about you? I don't want to be labeled like that. And we do the same thing with all kinds of other Bible Bible passages that challenge our comfort zones and our preconceived ideas of who God is and what pleases him. I think at the end of the day, we have the same kind of rebellious heart that Herod did. Maybe not as suspicious and murderous, but still yet rebellious. Being challenged by a new king We reject him, saying, my will be done, rather than thy will be done. Yet even with rebellious hearts, God still loves us. Romans 5.8 tells us that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I love that scripture so much because it tells us that It tells us that God doesn't love you because he ignores your sins and tries to see the best of you. No, he sees the worst of us. He is acquainted with the depths of the wickedness of our hearts. Those hidden things that you can even hide from your family members, those are known to God. And he still loves you. He still accepts you. He still wants to bring you in as a son or daughter of his. One writer said that you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. You are amazing, God. That is the power of how patient, loving, forgiving, and graceful our God is. You know, I I often look to the, the lost son parable. Where the rebel son was accepted back to the father. Not as a son on probation, You know, hey, I'll take you back, but watch your back. I'm watching you, kid. That's not how God viewed him. No, he took him back fully as a son, 
fully restored through the simple act of returning to the Father in a spirit of repentance. God will accept anyone who comes to him this morning with an open and repentant heart. One that says, here I am, Lord. And you know, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're a confessing Christian. But inwardly, there are places in your heart that don't belong to Jesus. Places where we're holding back. Places that aren't fully surrendered to him. My friends, my encouragement to you this morning is if, that, if you have places in your heart like that, lay those places down. His burden is light. Experience his grace and be restored as a son or a daughter as the lost son was. And just like the father was in that parable, he eagerly awaits your return. So I'm going to make two more quick observations from our text this morning and then work towards our conclusion. But first, I just want to touch quickly on this return journey discussed in verse 19. Because it says, when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. And when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in, a place, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. And so was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now we know from history that King Herod, the Herod being referred to in here, there's a couple of Herods in the New Testament. But this Herod, the, the real villain of the early chapters, he died in, about four, he died in 4 AD from history. So Jesus' time in Egypt was probably a very short period of time. It might have only been as brief as a couple of weeks and certainly no longer than two years, maximum. And it's interesting how people try to squeeze all these stories about Jesus' adventures in Egypt, things he learned, things he did when he grew up in Egypt. But uh, there, there's two problems with, with some of those interesting stories that you hear. Well, first of all, they're pure speculation. We have... No evidence of any of them other than stories that appear really late afterwards. And the second problem is they just don't fit the timeline. You know, Jesus can't be doing things in his teenage years in Egypt if he was there for two weeks as a preschool age kid. So not because I, we don't reject some of those stories because they don't fit our idea of who Jesus is, but it just doesn't fit the timeline. But that being said, they received word of this tyrant's death. They returned to Israel and finally settling in this insignificant city called Nazareth. <laughs> you know what brings to mind when Andrew was called to follow Jesus? And you guys remember what he said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a no-nothing little town, nothing significant. It wasn't on the water. There wasn't any major trade routes that went through there. How could anyone significant come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding? Well, if Jesus is, from, if Jesus is in Nazareth, amazing things can happen in Nazareth. And my friends, this, the same encouragement goes out to us. Dare I say, can anything good come out of South Amboy? 
Yes. If Jesus is in South Amboy, amazing things can happen in South Amboy. We can't forget that. It doesn't matter if Route 9 bypasses us and goes around or whatever. This is a special place that can have great influence if the Lord is here. And if the Lord is in our ministry, in the things that we do here, we prioritize him. It's not our location that makes us significant. It's that Jesus is with us. Let's not ever forget that. So that being said, I want to finally, in conclusion, look at these two quick verses that Matthew is quoting from the Old Testament in verses 15 and 18. Because there's some interesting thoughts there. Uh, where it says in verse 15, This was to be fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And then in verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now I find those quotes fascinating that Matthew would use those. Because those verses in that context don't seem to correspond to what's going on in the New Testament. When you read those back in there where he's quoting from in the book of Hosea and Jeremiah, well, that first quote is about Israel and the exodus from Egypt. And the second one about Rachel weeping is about it's Jeremiah weeping and mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem during the time of the Babylonian captivity. When they came in and they basically burnt Jerusalem to the ground. Those aren't prophecies talking about Jesus. Is Matthew connecting the wrong dots? Is he mistaken? No, I don't believe so for a moment. You see, in fact, he never says that they were prophecies in the first place. He calls them fulfillments. Fulfillments. The Bible refers to these as types of Christ. I refer to them as prophet. For closer to our own linguo, it's prophetic foreshadowing. Prophetic foreshadowing. Hints about Jesus in the Old Testament that are mirrored in the New Testament. I mean, have you ever watched a movie and you've seen a, uh, an, uh, something about the action sequence or a particular line of dialogue, and it just catches you and, you, and you think to yourself, I have a feeling that's going to come up again. I have a feeling I'm going to hear on that again as the story goes on. That's a literary device called foreshadowing, something that happens early in the story that comes up again later. Now, that's exactly... What's going on as Matthew is quoting these two verses from the Old Testament? You know, he's making a point that these things that happened in the Old Testament were foreshadowing things to come in the New. That just as Israel was called out of Egypt at the Exodus, so Jesus was called out of Egypt in his youth to the land of Canaan, to the land of Israel. And just as Judah wept over a military defeat, so too they would weep over this slaughter by Herod. Guys, if you are looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, you will find him all over the Old Testament. You, there's hints of him everywhere, not just prophecies, but hints, types, and these prophetic foreshadowings that we are referring to. In conclusion, one of my favorites of this prophetic foreshadowing is the Passover. 
found in Exodus chapter 12. Highly encourage you guys to go back and read that for yourselves. Um, I don't have time to go through it, read the passage, and discuss all of the details. But you guys know the story. Moses had been saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh was saying no. And, then, and they go through the succession of nine different plagues where God is just showing that he is the Lord. Doing things that could not be replicated by all of their gods and all of their temple worship stuff. And then they announce the tenth plague. The death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. But if anyone would select a male lamb who was without spot or blemish and bring it before the whole congregation and slaughter it at twilight and then cover their doorposts with the blood of the lamb, the angel of death would then pass over that household and they would not taste death when that plague comes. Now, what New Testament truth does that sound like? As a male named Jesus, who was clean and unstained from sin, was brought before the whole congregation of Israel and crucified. Now all those who believe in him are covered by the blood and will not taste death in its truest sense when death comes for each of us someday, but have eternal life. Oh, and by the way, when did Jesus die? It was during the Passover. The exact time where the slaughter of the Passover lamb was to take place was when Jesus breathed his last. Wow. How's that for a picture in the New Testament reflecting a picture in the Old? Thanks be to God. If that doesn't fill your heart with awe and wonder, I don't know what will. What is your response to the Savior this morning? Are we going to reject him in the name of our own, per, our own personal autonomy like Herod did, saying, my will be done? Or will we say to the spotless Passover lamb whose blood was shed for us, thy will be done? If you haven't settled your business with Jesus, if you haven't taken a moment to repent of your sins and accept the offer of salvation that he purchased for you on that cross, Please do so before you leave. Grab me up in the front or one of the other elders or leaders. We'd be happy to speak with you. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us now respond to his word by affirming what we believe. As is found in the back of our hymnals, the Apostles' Creed. Let us stand together.